session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dalakwin. I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra on Instagram Live, so I won't be taking any calls. But you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes and Spotify. So let's get into the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show, or sorry, next Wednesday's show. Next Monday is a holiday here in the United States, so I'll talk about this book on Wednesday's show. It is Language at the Speed of Sight by Mark Seidenberg. Language at the Speed of Sight, How We Read, Why So Many Can't, and What Can Be Done About It. And so uh, I guess this book, from what I saw on the back, descriptions of it looks at some of the neuroscience of how we read and then also has some suggestions related to education uh, related to reading so i thought it was interesting that i'll be reading about how we read kind of a meta type of a thing but i thought it would be an interesting book to understand that better and how it relates to education as well so again that's language at the speed of sight by mark seidenberg the book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about tonight is Consolations by David White, Consolations, the Solace, Nourishment, and Underlying Meaning of Everyday Words. And this was a really uh, beautiful book. It was like poetry because the author, David White, is a poet. And so, as the title implies, the solace, nourishment, and underlying meaning of everyday words each, if you want to call it a chapter, because there's probably like 40 or 50 of them, and they're three pages, four pages, five pages each, goes deeply into a particular word. And it was quite interesting. As much as it was about the words, you also get a philosophy of life, uh, essentially, from David White in this book, as he talks about different aspects of being human or human experience, things like forgiveness, beauty, uh, memory, nostalgia, pain, regret, heartbreak. And um, so it was quite interesting. And you definitely see, for me, this humanistic type of experience of life that he, uh, I don't want to say advocates, but talks about that we should try to, as I felt it, embrace all aspects of life. Because the chapters that especially stood out to me, some of which I'll, I'll get into, were the words that sound negative, that we think of as a negative word, but that he would, in the way of looking at the underlying meaning and going a little deeper, show that it's actually not something bad. And so language is a very interesting thing. We think of it as static, or you can look up words in a dictionary, but first of all, language is a living thing. If you um, look at language from 100 years ago, the same word might have meant something different than it does now. And also to each person, there could be differences or from your own experience or the way you understand the word or the concept can be different. So it was interesting to see his exploration into these different words. And again, not just about the words, it was really about life and how one might want to live or not live their life 
for example, something like ambition, which we think of as something uh, very positive and you want, but he, he talks about it, how it's kind of this cold thing, that it's actually not so good. It starts off, ambition is a word that lacks any real ambition. Ambition is frozen desire, the current of a vocational life, immobilized and over-concretized to set unforgiving goals. I thought that was interesting. And I could get that sense that there's something about when we say ambition, it's it's very much about on the outside or what other people think or some, as he puts it, these concrete goals, which is not necessarily bad, but it lacks something real from within. But another one of those where you see a side of a word or concept that for me was interesting was anger. I mentioned this on the show last week, but let me share some of what he says about anger. So it starts off, anger is the deepest form of, of compassion for another, for the world, for the self, for a life, for the body, for a family, and for all our ideals, all vulnerable and all possibly about to be hurt. And that was interesting. Anger is the deepest form of compassion, usually not something we think about. And anger is one of those emotions that people think of as bad, not just bad, as all bad. People think if I can have less anger, that's a good. And of course, anger, when expressed in a bad way or not a good way, healthy way, can be very destructive. It can lead to violence, aggression, hurting loved ones, abuse. All these horrible things can be in some way, an expression of anger, but he talks about how that's not really the genuine expression of anger. So we can understand that connection we have with anger, that anger is bad. If you have anger, you have to get rid of it, or if you have anger, you shouldn't show it or should hide it or should get rid of it before you show it to anyone else. But as he says, when we really look at anger, he says it's about compassion because it shows what we care about. Now, you might not like the things that make you angry, but it does help you understand what you care about. So if someone is about to hurt your child, you're going to react with strong anger, not because the anger is bad. It's actually very good. It's an expression of that compassion you have for your child that you don't want to let anyone harm them. So in this way, we can see the actual even beauty in anger, that it actually can be something like, compassion rather than this thing we have to just get rid of. And so that's something I felt throughout his book that I very much connected with because I often talk about the quote-unquote negative feelings people think about like sadness or anger. And usually people think we have to just get rid of those things. If they're bad, they don't feel good, get rid of them. But his um, philosophy on that that I see throughout this book is that they're actually things to embrace as we know, all feelings are information. So if you feel angry, that's telling you something. If you feel sad, it's giving you information. And not only that, living a meaningful life will involve feeling those things. Or really, you can't live a meaningful, connected life, connected both to yourself, to others, and to the world, unless you are open to experiencing the quote-unquote negative feelings. And so even when he talks about things like despair or heartbreak, it's not in this heartbreak is so bad, but there's also some beauty in heartbreak. There's some beauty in despair that he talks about, which I thought was quite fascinating because our feelings are essentially telling us what's going on. And if you live a life that's meaningful, you're going to have some experiences that don't feel good uh, or you have to risk that. 
if you want to have love, you have to risk that you can get hurt in that process. Even having children, you are opening yourself up, of course, to the most beautiful experience, but also to some of the most painful pains you could possibly experience. And you have to accept that risk if you want to experience those beautiful things. You can't have the best things in life without accepting the risks that will come with them. You can't have the most beautiful feelings of life without opening yourself up to risk and even recognizing that those negative feelings that you think are so negative might have some beauty in them as well. So that was something that very much resonated with with me in reading this book. And as a philosophy of life, we usually think the goal of life is to be happy. That's what most people think. How do you become more happy? Or there's so many books on happiness. And it's not that I think happiness is bad, but I don't think our goal in life should be to feel happy all the time. And of course, when we're talking about a book on words, we want to make sure we're careful about the words we're using because happiness can be defined in different ways. For some people, it's more of this feeling of just a a positive feeling all the time. So if you're happy, it means you feel good all the time. And unfortunately, that's what some people think they are supposed to go towards. Whereas happiness can also mean living a life you are content with, which is what I much prefer. And I even like thinking about living a meaningful, fulfilled, and a life you are content with rather than using the word happiness. Because I think people usually, when they think of happiness, they think you have to be smiling feeling good all the time, and that's what happiness means. And so if I'm not feeling good, then I'm unhappy, I'm doing something wrong. But when you live a meaningful life, you at times feel very bad. You can get hurt when you live a meaningful life. If you care about others, you're going to sometimes get hurt. If you want to never feel bad, then you also have to not care too much about other people, or even in some ways yourself, but especially about other people. Yesterday I was watching... um, a show and I was looking at Skid Row downtown Los Angeles where there's many individuals experiencing homelessness and I started crying and I don't think of that as something negative that I was brought to tears from what I was watching. It was a sense of compassion and connection for fellow individuals and actually I recognized some of the people that were shown in the show because I've I've had the opportunity of being there and working with some people there. So I saw some people I knew, some familiar faces, and also just seeing the experiences that people have, and I was brought to tears. And it's not something I would trade for the world to have that feeling or to recognize that and feel that. Those quote-unquote negative feelings oftentimes inform us of what is important, just like that anger that he talks about is compassion. That sadness that I was feeling being moved to tears was telling me about this injustice that exists, and it further made me want to do more, make sure I'm trying to help other people in whatever ways I can. And so interestingly, uh, I had responded to an email to potentially volunteer more with the, the children experiencing homelessness from school on wheels. And I got a response and my thought was, of course, I'm going to say yes to that to see if I can uh, add some more time in helping others, um, which is in some ways the least I can do. But it did push me that negative, quote unquote, what we can think of a negative feeling because in the moment might not feel so pleasant. Uh, Feeling was fueling something, I think, positive and good. So again, the negative feelings or the way we think of negative feelings doesn't necessarily mean they are actually bad. It might not feel good in the moment, but that oftentimes is something very important. I really enjoyed his description of friendship 
friendship is a mirror to presence and a testament to forgiveness. And he talked about how important forgiveness is in any friendship to really have a long and meaningful friendship. Forgiveness has to be there, which also is true, of course, in a romantic relationship, which the base of which has to be a strong friendship as well. And then the end of that friendship chapter or section, he says that the ultimate touchstone of friendship, of friendship is not improvement, neither of the other nor of the self. The ultimate touchstone is witness, the privilege of having been seen by someone and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence of another, to have walked with them and to have believed in them and sometimes just to have accompanied them for however brief a span on a journey impossible to accomplish alone. And I thought that was a beautiful description of friendship and the genuine friendship. He says it's not about trying to improve the other person or yourself. Uh, and that's something I've talked about recently related to acceptance, that when you love someone, you accept them as they are. And to be seen by someone, he says, witness. You see someone, they see you genuinely. And really, when you think about a true friend, someone that we're deeply connected with, it's someone who you show your truest self. It might be, at moments, the parts we think are, are the ugly, when we say the good, bad, and the ugly. But you show them that, and they love that, and they show you their parts that maybe they might be afraid to show to the world or might hide from others, but they show them to you. And that's what you get to enjoy, seeing them and seeing how beautiful they are. And although... Therapy is not really friendship, but related to that when you are a therapist, as I am, and get to see people showing you, at times, their most vulnerable sides of themselves, you really see the beauty of, of, of humans, of being a human being, that even though these are the parts that people at times think are not good, that would make them unlovable, you see the beauty in that raw vulnerability and showing you who they truly are. And so similarly in our friendships or our romantic relationships, we hopefully have that type of dynamic where we are witnesses to each other. And to really be a witness and to be seen, we have to allow the other person to see us. And of course, as the one witnessing, we have to make them feel comfortable. So I thought that was quite interesting. Another one of those words that uh, you know you, sounds very negative on the surface is pain. So pain, of course, just... It's almost, it's definition we think of as negative, hurting, not feeling good. But he's talking about how, it, he says, pain is the doorway to the here and now. And this was interesting. So uh, on Friday, I, I don't know if I threw out my back. I don't know exactly what the term was, but I had some pain in my lower back. That was pretty bad for from Friday. It's much, much better now. Um, but I was reading this chapter as I was in some pain. I, I really want to make it clear it was in a lot of pain but it was definitely some pain and discomfort and I was reading this chapter and it was kind of interesting but it, it, when it talked about putting you in the here and now it, I, it re, I realized how true that was because when you're in some pain it's not something we seek out or we want but it does find us no matter what whether we're talking about physical pain or emotional pain uh, it does it makes it hard to not be present at that moment how could I not feel my body when it was hurting and so I did actually feel very present and recognize that it was creating this grounding. And also, it, it, as he talks about, through pain, we are able to connect to other people's pain because of our own experience of pain. And so often I've seen people in 
family relationships, romantic relationships, when they're when one individual is not in touch with their pain, doesn't want to get to it, they have almost no tolerance for someone else's pain because by getting in touch with their pain, they have to get in touch with their own. And so because they're so much in denial or defending against that pain, they can't be there for someone else when they're going through pain or going through something difficult. So they have to quickly try to cheer the other person up or um, tell them it's okay or undermine their pain or tell them they're sensitive or various ways they escape connecting to that pain. So really through our own experience of pain, we are able to then connect to others and it increases and improves our capacity for empathy for others. Um, other chapters like regret I thought was interesting because to me, I, I agreed with him that sometimes people like to say I have no regrets and it's almost something boastful that people will say to talk about not having regrets, but he thinks, he says how he doesn't think that is something good to have no regrets. And I agree with that. Not that you should be living in your past, beating yourself up or um, staying stuck in that past, but I think it's important to learn from our past too. And at times that means regret. You know, I wish I did that. And so then when you're faced with another opportunity, you might have learned from that mistake and do something different. Just like when we talk about history, people will say, if we don't know the history of, of humankind, we are doomed to make the same mistakes. And I think the same thing is true about our lives. If we don't understand our own history and see where we might have done something that could have been done better or done something wrong or wish we'd done it a different way, then you'll keep doing the same things because you, you want to boast that I've never done anything wrong. So I think there's a humility and recognizing that it would make sense to have some regrets in life when you understand what that means. Not to say you have to be punishing yourself, but in realizing, I could have done things differently. I wish I did it differently. Next time, given the opportunity, I will do it differently. So this is a, a really lovely book. Again, it's called Consolations by David White. Very easy to read as well, because as I said, each chapter is maybe three, four, and five pages, and they're short pages. But it makes you think about a lot of things. I've read some of the chapters multiple times because uh, I, I wanted to get the depth of it in, in true poetic fashion. There's a lot of depth to his writing. So I highly recommend the book just to uh, give you a sense of some ways of looking at words that you never thought of. And it also makes you realize the ways we think about things is so affected by the words that we use, but also the words that we use can be so affected about by the ways we think about them. So it's a pretty complex process, but I really enjoyed this book. So thank you to my friends, uh, Roxana and Alex, that recommended this book to me. Again, Consolations by David White. Let's go to a commercial break. You're listening to In Session. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I talked about the book Consolations by David White, The Solace, Nourishment, and Underlying Meaning of Everyday Words. And so in it, he, he talks about different words and their meanings and different things and looking at words in a, in a different uh, perspective. And so I wanted to continue the conversation on words and language, definitely not my um, expertise, but looking at the meaning of words is, is very important, the way we use words. So... Many people, we hear these conversations about political correctness and people are, uh, you know, saying, well, why do we make, put so much emphasis on the certain words that we use? 
And I think political correctness definitely at times has gone too far to the point where it actually stifles language or stifles uh, discourse and communication and conversation on certain issues. And I think that is a problem. But in this segment, I'm going to talk about the importance of the words we use and being aware of that. In the last segment, I might come back to some of these issues related to cancel culture and when we become too focused on the words and use them against the other person rather than trying to have a conversation that will be meaningful. So in the first segment, as I said in this segment, words do matter. And so to think that there's this notion that some people have that if you don't, uh, you know, care about what people think when you say words, that's somehow a sign of strength. Or actually even taken a step further, that if what you say offends certain people, that's something good, you know, from both sides. For example, in the United States, the right and the left. If I say something, you know, if someone's from the left and they say something that offends people on the right, they think, haha, that's why I even say it. And vice versa, someone on the right will say something and it offends people on the left and they say, oh, I, I love liberal snowflake tears or making them cry, making them feel bad. And so we don't want to feel limited in what we say. Freedom of speech is important, but the words we choose matter. But if we're saying things to intentionally harm someone else, then we are trying to just hurt them. And really, it's not even so much that we have freedom because they are choosing what we say. If my intention is just to offend you, then I'm picking things that I think will hurt you rather than expressing my genuine thoughts. So if in expressing my genuine thoughts you get offended, that could be one thing and can be looked at. But if I pick certain words and phrases intentionally to harm you, that's very different. That means I want to hurt you. It's almost in that sense uh, an act of, of, you want to say aggression might sound strong or even someone could say hate, but it gives a sense that you're picking your words to hurt someone, which again means that you're allowing them to choose for you. It's kind of like when people think they're being so rebellious that they say no to everything that someone says. That's not being rebellious. Yes, there's a certain level of conformity to just say yes to what someone says. But if you're exactly saying no to whatever they say, that's not being uh, independent. That's being dependent on them still. Oh, you said yes, I'm going to say no to whatever you say yes to. Oh, you said no, I'm going to say yes. You're still choosing what I say, what I think, and whatnot. So it's interesting that sometimes people think they're being so um, expressive and free and it shows how much they don't care or they're such an independent thinker if they're saying things to intentionally hurt someone, but that's not actually the case. If you're saying the words to intentionally hurt someone else, then you're actually letting them choose for you. It's not about freedom of speech. Now, the words we choose also, or we use matter, or the words we don't use. I've talked a few times about this because I think it's important, but there's an F word. There's a few F words I probably can't say on the air, but there's one F word that I don't know actually how it's even um, censored, but I won't say it, and I wouldn't say it not even on the air, but in general, but referring to homosexual males, there is an F word that I even remember when I was a child, it was used more than it is now. Both, I mean, I'm sure in playgrounds, maybe it still is used, but I would hear it on the playground and on TV, in music. Actually, I heard a rap song on the way here and it actually had the word in it, which I don't like, but the word was in that song and that was from the 90s. But you would be 
less likely to hear it now, even in rap music. Sometimes you still hear it. There is a lot of homophobia in rap, but that word is not used. Again, a certain F word that I won't say. And does it mean that not saying that word has changed uh, LGBT treatment and rights? No, it definitely has not changed by itself, that word. But these things happen in concert. They happen together. So the words we choose do matter. Because I know sometimes people say, well, who cares about if we say it this way or that way? And yes, if we make those things the only things that matter, that's a problem. But to say it's meaningless to me is not true. The words we use definitely have an impact. And at times they can reflect how we think about a certain individual or in this case about a certain group. If you make it okay to use a slur against a group, or sometimes a slur is developed to dehumanize a certain group, then what you're doing is contributing to the hate, and this is part of the expression of our thoughts. Because what is language other than a way to express our thoughts to one another? Uh, it's impossible to put my own words, my own thoughts into words that will accurately describe my thoughts, of course. And then when I say it, there will be something lost in quote-unquote translation for you to then take that in and understand what I'm saying. But language is the best thing we have, and it does a pretty darn good job of getting the job done. Um, and, it, and also, it's an expression of my thoughts. So if I use a word that has a negative association that we know is hurtful or hateful to a certain group, that expresses a certain amount of hate and negativity, and it also shows that this is okay, it's acceptable to be mean, hateful, to dehumanize this group. For example, I don't like to use some of the words, but I will. As I mentioned, I watched a show on individuals experiencing homelessness. And even that's something I might say another way. Or they even they were saying uh, houselessness rather than homelessness, I heard them say, which I think was to emphasize that you can still feel like you're at home even if you don't live inside of a house and of course, vice versa. But people, you know, we say homeless people, or even worse, they say a homeless. I hear Persians say that sometimes maybe it's a um, related to language, not knowing how to express it as well. Well, they say a homeless. And it's different to say that than to say someone, a person experiencing homeless, homelessness. And I know it sounds nitpicky or it sounds like, what's the big deal? A difference, but it does have an impact on how we look at the individual or we other some people. Oh, that's a homeless or that's a homeless person, meaning that defines them, describes them, and in a way almost prescribes them to that life, that that's all that they are and they, we can't change that. Rather than recognizing when someone is experiencing homelessness, it's not something inherent about them that makes them homeless or it's not that they... Uh, that's the only way they can be, or it's their choice in some way and nothing can be changed. It's something they're experiencing now. So it is a subtle change of the language. It might seem to most people like, what's the big deal? Or you're making it too big of a deal. And I'm sure I'll say it the other way many times or call someone homeless. Uh, even when I talk about school on wheels, I try to say children experiencing homelessness, not homeless children, which is how I probably said it when I first started volunteering there. Very subtle, but it does have a difference. It does have an impact that I think we should not ignore and be aware of that. Now, it doesn't mean, as I'll probably talk about later on the show, that if someone comes up to me and says, oh, I helped a homeless child with blah, 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 I'm going to say, oh, you said 
homeless child, not child experiencing homelessness. You're a bad person. You hate the homeless people who are experiencing homelessness, you know, whatever else. That to me would not be okay. But having that awareness ourselves in growing in trying to understand better what these words mean, what the language expresses is very important. When we don't pay attention to the words we are using, we don't pay attention to the ideas that are being spread. And not only that words are associated with feelings about certain things, about certain groups. So when we use negative words about certain groups, we are again promoting this negative thought and it becomes okay to have this negative thought about that group, whatever group we are talking about. And it can seem exhausting to try to keep up with the language. I think I understand that. For example, with pronouns, I read a book recently um, from a linguist talking about pronouns. It was very informative for me to understand that um, when you look at the pronouns and sometimes people think people have gone too far, what's the point? But when you try to understand that people feel left out, they don't feel included, or they feel like you don't see them. I talked about it in the book, uh, David White mentions friendship. It's about witnessing, to be seen and to, be, to allow the other person to see you and to see them. When you don't feel fully seen by someone because they don't see you as you see yourself, as your identity, then you don't feel so close. You don't get to feel accepted. And that's something we should take seriously. So it's not just someone saying, I want you to call me this or call me that because they, they want to, to be difficult or they want to create a challenge or an obstacle. When you really understand what that means for someone, let's say who's transgender, who might have been born male, but identifies as female and wants you to call them she, that can be very meaningful for them to see, feel like you see them as they feel and as they see themselves. I actually remember the first time I experienced that of calling someone she that was uh, born male, someone who's transgender, was at least 10 years ago, maybe more, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, in my uh, one of my internships in my PhD program. I was in a psychiatric hospital for a year, and there was one um, transgender female and wanted to be called she, but did look male to many people. And so there was this discomfort, and I remembered how important it was to her for me to say she. And I could see that it meant something to her that I was saying she. And that was very meaningful for me to see that experience and also seeing that the ways people were looking at her when she would say she or when uh, she asked to be called by her, I forgot what the name was, and of course, not that it matters really, but I wouldn't say just even that first name right now. There was a lot of... um, blowback or snickering, laughing, or you could tell ridiculing. And so we see that this is what happens when we don't allow for that to matter, for her to say, I want you to call me she rather than he. We also are saying you don't matter so much. What you're saying is not valid. When you say this is your experience, it's not important. So we are just going to, even if we make fun of you, uh, even if we hurt you, it's okay because we're dehumanizing you. We're taking away your own Um, sense of identity, sense of self. And so we do see that the LGBTQ community in general experiences, unfortunately, still more bullying and even um, more than just bullying people, being aggressive with them. Hate crimes is very common within that population or towards that population. And transgender individuals experience that very strongly. And even in that 
a show I was watching yesterday when they were showing the individuals who were experiencing homelessness. There was, they went to see some people and they were kind of on the outskirts of Skid Row. And one of them was a transgender female. And she said, people, I can't stay where most of the people are. And most of the people who are LGBTQ stay a little bit on the outside because it's not as safe for us there because we're subject to bullying and, and violence and things of that sort. So it might seem small, it might seem subtle, but the words we choose matter. And it might seem like, why should people make these things a big deal? But they do matter. Think about the ways people say something to you. Sometimes just the turn of phrase, the choice of words can change. A compliment might feel like something mean if there's something in there that strikes you the wrong way. Um, or someone apologizing or someone saying something to you. And when we communicate, especially with loved ones, so I think general society, it's very important that we pay attention to the words, that we don't ignore these conversations about conversations, about the words that we choose. I know it becomes a big source of um, political debate about political correctness. And I will talk about probably in the next segment how it can go too far. But being aware of the words we choose is very important. And when you have a partner, especially your friend, family member, if they tell you a certain word offends you, I would hope that you pay attention to that. Even if you think I gave them a compliment and they said it hurts. It's like if you give someone a massage and you hit a sensitive spot and they say it hurts, you can't say, well, I'm giving you a massage. You can't say anything. You really should pay attention. Say, I want to understand how what I did, let's say if you're massaging hurt them, but let's say in the words, how what I said hurt you. Please, it allows me to understand you better, actually, when you let them tell you. Then you can also respond in a way that feels better to them. If you love someone, why wouldn't you want to understand how to communicate with them in a way that feels better to them? And I think the experience or the ways that people sometimes express, oh, I have to think about what to say or how to say this word, I understand it does take some effort for us to stay educated but or informed, but if you really care about people, you would want to know what they want to hear and what they want to say. And I think the response should be that when someone gets the word wrong or doesn't say the preferred word, or talking about pronouns or whatever it might be, that the response isn't you're evil, you're bad, you're, you're horrible, because then people are afraid to talk and they're going to not want to understand those words. We hopefully will respond in a way that um, gives them space to make mistakes because we all will. As woke as you think you are, there's words you use. I'm sure there's phrases I use that aren't so aware of the sensitivities or the understandings of certain people, certain individuals, and I'll continue to learn. So hopefully we can all maintain that humility that you want to be caring and respectful, but you're going to be wrong sometimes. And as is with almost anything, our intentions are what matters, and people will tell you that. Most individuals, let's say, if they're from whatever group it might be, but if they recognize that you're trying to be kind, and if you're misspeaking, it might be out of ignorance, but not out of actually uh, ill intention, that's a very different experience, and hopefully they'll, they'll help you understand. So hopefully we're open to saying, you know what, maybe I said that wrong, or help me say this better, so I understand how to talk about this issue, or how to address you or to address members of, of your community. That's hopefully something we, we all can do. Now in the next segment, I'll talk a bit about when it could go too far because having that awareness is important too. So let's go to another commercial break. You're listening to In Session. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. So in the last segment, the previous segment, now this is going to be the last segment of the show, but in the previous segment, talked about how important words can be in uh, when we speak to others and showing respect, care, compassion, kindness to other people, that to hear them and understanding the words they like to hear and don't like to hear is very, very important. And so we don't want to minimize that and to think that other people's feelings should not matter at all and we should say whatever we want to say. Uh, there should be, I think, a, a humility and understanding that people will have different preferences for words and if we care about them, we will care about those preferences. So I think that's very important. And it does affect even the ways that humanity society changes. Again, I mentioned this in the last segment. It's not that if we change the word, everything will change, but that if we are aware of the words and being sensitive to them, it can be a part of the process or a parallel process where we start to change the way we think and feel and talk about a group will change their treatment going forward and the way we think about them. So um, even the way we other certain people are saying, oh, them has a very strong connotation. So sometimes when we talk about a certain group and make them such an other, that already creates this distance. And it's complicated because at the same time, sometimes groups want to have an identity because they want to be seen, and that can be a fine line. But in this last segment, I did want to talk about how our sensitivity to language can go too far. And really, it's not even about sensitivity, and I don't even know if it's about oversensitivity. It's an overreaction that I think is not even about what's going on as far as the words that are being used. So this comes in the wake or with awareness of things like cancel culture that we see happening uh, in, in social media and in the media in general, where, for example, someone will say something um, or they'll find something someone said years ago and then cancel them. And so you'll hear like these or hashtags like cancel so-and-so if they find some something that they said or that they didn't say. So there's something good in this, in the sense that for far too long, racism, sexism that was explicit and also implicit was very much ignored, accepted, almost you could say promoted to some degree. And so I think there's a reaction to that, that people are saying, you know what, it's not okay to be racist and then be in power or to um, be sexist or and be in entertainment and promote those ideas or have those ideas and and express them in your work. So there's something good in that, that we're holding people accountable. That is good, to hold people accountable, to hold society accountable, to be aware of what's going on. But what we do see is, I think, an extreme reaction, which is often the case in any type of uh, progress, which some aspect of it might be progress, but there's a reaction that I don't think is fully about what is being said by people, where some people are going too far that if 20 years ago you said something that's considered racist now, by the standards we have now, you might be canceled now uh, for something that you did, which, depending on the degree, does matter. So I don't want to say anything you said before doesn't matter, but that we want to be aware of how we react to certain things, or if someone says a wrong word, because what it can do is it can limit our ability to have conversations to have discourse when people can be so strongly punished for using the wrong word 
So it's one of those things where the punishment doesn't fit the crime and there might not even be a crime. I'll share this. When I'm talking about issues related to race, uh, related to sexuality, LGBTQ issues, and, and other issues that are sensitive that I know people can be, uh, the words that use can be very important. I've realized that I, at times, will speak more slowly, which is not always bad. But what I mean is that I'll hesitate in saying certain things because I realized, and I had to do some reflection on this, that there was some anxiety of what if I use the wrong word? What if I say something wrong or in the wrong way? Even last week, uh, you know, putting myself on blast in a way, I, I used the word, I used the term civil civilized countries or something like that accidentally i misspoke and what i meant was more wealthy countries but i said civilized which could be looked at as a negative way and in the moment maybe you can even watch the video itself i remember thinking oh is that something that people would say was really wrong to say and i'm still talking on the air as i was having that thought in my head of like oh saying that word is that is that somehow prejudiced or discriminatory or really judgmental to certain individuals. And so I had to have this reflection a while ago looking at, well, what is it that makes me more hesitant? I realized I was afraid to say that wrong word and it's recorded and it's going to, it can be played again. And so what if I misspeak? Now one could look at this and we have to look at ourselves. So I did really uh, think deeply, do I have some explicit racist or sexist views or against certain groups and I really don't think that's the case I do think that every human being growing up especially let's say in the American society is going to have some at least implicit biases about certain um, about certain groups certain individuals that's just going to be a consequence of living in in this country or in any society so in that sense I accept that I definitely have some prejudiced beliefs and biases within myself ones that I might not even be aware of and definitely ones I would not want to hold, but I'm sure that's there. But when I reflected on it, I don't think it was because I have something hidden that I was afraid that would come out, but I think it was this fear that if you say something quote-unquote wrong, you don't just get, you know, oh, you know, you said it this way. I would, I would actually like that. If someone listens to my show and you say, you know, you use this term to refer to this group, this is actually a more preferred way to say it. And I hope I would be open enough to hear that and understand that I think I would be. I wouldn't want that if I misspoke for people to say, you know, cancel Dr. Fatty or cancel his show, cancel Radio Hamra or whatever it might be if I misspeak. But I realized I had some anxiety about that. And so this is in a way it illustrated to me this, what is happening in society at large, that when we make this extreme response to certain words being said or people saying things in a certain way, then what can happen is we stifle conversation. So I felt stifled when I'm talking. I felt, oh, maybe I shouldn't. I have to be careful of what I'm saying. And so what we do is people become afraid to even talk. They might become afraid to even learn. So someone says, you know what? I want to know more about uh, individuals who are transgender. And yes, it's not the responsibility of any community to educate you about them or what's going on or their history, but still they might be afraid to ask anyone. Well, if I ask them, will I look like a bigot? Will I look 
ignorant? Will I look like a bad person? And so people are afraid to even have the conversations, especially to have the conversations with people they disagree with, which already we see is happening so um, scarcely right now. It's not happening nearly enough because people are so against each other. So, of course, even more that they're going to use these words against each other. Oh, you use that word. Clearly it shows you're racist or it shows you're sexist or you don't care about these people or you're whatever it might be. And so, of course, it's going to stifle conversation even more. So when we're talking about words, we want to focus on words, but not in a way that limits the words we are speaking to one another, where people can have conversations and not feel that if I use the wrong word, I'm going to be in some way um, negatively punished, strongly punished. People's even their career might be lost because they used the wrong word or said something the wrong way. And I think that is a problem. That yes, we hold people accountable. We make them aware. Yes, if someone says something intentionally harmful, not that we always know someone's intention, but something can be blatantly, let's say, racist. Some things can be blatantly homophobic that there can be some kind of reaction that people might say this is not acceptable, this is not okay. But I think we have to be careful not to take away the possibility for discourse by essentially putting a muzzle on people. So it's a balanced approach. The words matter. We have to care about these things. We have to hold people accountable. But I think at times what we're seeing is some of the reaction that we see, the way I see it is that people are almost looking for racism, sexism, which is good. But I think at times they're trying to look for it even when it might not be there because it's some kind of a expression of what we feel is within ourselves that we project out. So I think everyone does have some racist, sexist, prejudiced biases within themselves, something that we want to make sure we recognize and get in touch with. And because of that and something we don't feel good about having those, we try to find it in other people and put the blame on them or punish or exaggerate what they're saying to, in a way, project and take out the parts within myself that I don't like and put them onto you or put them on some other. Because the way I see some of the what's happening on social media, let's say on Twitter, is it's almost like when you see kids and if they feel like the teacher has gotten them in trouble in a way they don't like, they're looking for other kids breaking the rules to find Away. Oh, you know, he did that. Look, you said only two minutes and he was there three minutes. You have to punish him. It seems in a way we're trying to punish others for something maybe we might have within ourselves. So absolutely, we need to hold people accountable. We should not allow for racism and sexism and all the other is- isms of prejudice to exist. And we do have to be vigilant. It doesn't mean we ignore these things because they have permeated society so much that They are really part of so many conversations, so many things that we might not be aware of. But at the same time, we do have to be aware that intention does matter. That if someone is not aware and speaks in a certain way, doesn't want to harm people, yes, they might be ignorant, but ignorant doesn't mean ill-hearted and that they should be punished. And so as so many things in life, we have to find this balance of holding people accountable, being aware, but being aware that our reaction, our response is equal to what's going on and actually can lead to more conversation, more discourse, more dialogue, and is not actually going to take it all away and make it so everyone is afraid to talk, ready to just pounce on one another, and we end all conversation and discussion. Well, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. 